Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you take your Bibles, this is the time of our service when we open the Word of God and hear what God has for us to hear this morning. As we come to the book of 1 Peter, we're doing a verse-by-verse study of 1 Peter. But before we go to 1 Peter, you can find 1 Peter 3. But before we look at that, I want to draw your attention to 1 John. 1 John, for a moment, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to look at it in just a second. But I just want to point out something to you that sort of sets the stage for what we want to talk about in 1 Peter this morning. You know, when you talk about us as Christians, there are a lot of titles that the New Testament gives when we're discussing or describing a Christian. A Christian is a a child of God. A Christian is called a child of the light or children of the light. Christians are called believers or, or the faithful. We're called brothers and sisters. We're called witnesses. We're called lights of the world. We're called the elect of God. We're called the chosen of God. We're called ambassadors for Christ. We're called ministers. We're called servants, disciples, branches in the vine, members of the body of Christ, living stones. We saw that earlier in 1 Peter, the beloved followers. There's many more. But one that you don't usually see is the one that's mentioned here in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, and it's mentioned three times in verses 4 and 5. Let me just read this verse to you. These two verses to you. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Overcomers. (laughs) You don't hear that term used a whole lot. It's mentioned in John. It's mentioned in Revelation several times. Overcomers. That's what we are described as by the Apostle John. The word can also mean victors. We're victors. And the word here for overcomes is the word nikeo. Uh, In the Greek, it means to conquer. It means to win. It means to defeat. It means to have victory. The noun nikeo is where we get the word Nike from. The Greeks loved the word Nike. They had a goddess named Nike, and this was the goddess of victory, the goddess of triumph. And they, they believed that victory was only possible for the gods, not for normal people. We would have occasional victories, they would say, but it's only the gods that were unconquerable. It was only the gods who could be totally victorious. And not us, not us, not humans. And it's against that background it's against that background that uh, the meaning of the word, that it, this word overcomer or victors would be applied to us as Christians. Uh, because it only belonged to the gods in Greek culture. And we like the word in English. Uh, we had, our military had missiles called Nike missiles. Remember that? 
No, you don't. I don't either, but I just remember hearing about them. I can barely, vaguely remember it. But we remember it mostly by the shoes, right? Wear Nike shoes, and you'll be victorious. Whatever sport you're doing, just the swoosh, you're a victor. That's where this comes from. You'll triumph in whatever you want to do. Go to John 16, 33. John 16, 33. These things, verse 33 of John 16. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. He's, he's speaking in the context of telling them they're going to face trouble in the world. He's saying, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have triumphed over. I have been victorious over. I have overcome the world. I have, I have won the conflict. I have won the conflict with the world. I have defeated the world. I have conquered the world system. I am the victor over the world. Interesting how this word is used again in Romans. Turn to Romans 8.33. Believers are called super conquerors. Hupo nakeo. We're called super conquerors in this verse, in these verses. Romans 8.33. These are verses that speak of your security as a believer. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation do that? Can distress do that? Can persecution do that? Can famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, here's your word, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We are super conquerors. Hupo nakeo. Through him who loved us. See that part? Through him who loved us. I'm not a conqueror. You're not a conqueror because you're so strong and great. It is because of who you are in. It is because he was victorious, we're going to be victorious. We are victorious. It's because he was triumphant, we will be triumphant. This is a very important message. It's an important message when you think, when you think the bad guys are winning. It's an important message when you think the evil are prospering. It's an important message when it doesn't look like we're winning at all. And, and the message to this suffering congregation that Peter is writing to is the people that are actually winning don't always look like they are winning. That's his message to them. You're triumphant. You're overcomers. You're victorious. That's the theme of the section I'm showing you and taking you to in 1 Peter right now. Because they need to hear this. Because it does look like evil is prospering. It does look like the persecutors are winning. It doesn't look good for us. Many of them would feel. We're victorious in Christ. Understand that. 
In Christ, we are victorious. We are identified with him. We have victory with him. He can't be conquered. We can't be conquered. See, here's the point. The war is settled. Positionally, we have won the war. Listen, read your Bible. We win. We win. There are battles along the way, vicious battles along the way, discouraging battles along the way. We lose some of those battles sometimes, but we're victorious. That's the perspective I have to have. See, that's a positional truth. Because he was victorious, he says, it's settled, it's settled. It's all settled. The war's over. We win. Paul struggled with himself in Romans 7. I struggle with my flesh. I, I see this evil in me. The very things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, I want to do, I don't do. I just struggle with my flesh all the time. I struggle with persecution. I struggle with the world coming after me. I get thrown in jail. I get despised and hated and he finally got executed. But none of that can take away the victory and that's the point of Romans 8. None of that can destroy the victory that we have in Christ. There's nothing this world could ever do to you that even if, even if they killed you as a believer, if even if they killed you as a believer, all that would do is usher you into your eternal triumph. Now, this may sound foreign to an American audience, but you talk this way around the world, they understand where life and death is. And they understand their lives could be snuffed out real quick for professing Christ. But they know there's nothing the world can do to them. The worst they can do is kill them and usher them into glory. The worst the world can do to them is kill them and help them escape this body of flesh they've been wanting to get out of anyway. And free us to the glorious realities that Christ has accomplished for us. Hmm. So I say that because we're overcomers, we're victors, and, and that's why the world is really not a threat to us. It really isn't. It really is not. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. I'm victorious over the world, no matter what it throws at you. We've got to remember that. God, give us the grace to remind ourselves of this truth. The victory has been won in Christ. The war is over. Battles are there, yes. And they're annoying, and they're temp- but they are temporary. And our inheritance is with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, but we conquer in him. So that's what we're talking about in 1 Peter, in these verses that I've been started last week, in end of chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Because that's what he's trying to encourage them in. He's trying to tell them. He's not so much giving them instruction of how to deal with the world as much as he's how to think about things. He's reminding them of this very victory I've just got through telling you about. Christ was victorious. Look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Let me read this. For Christ also, this is chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, 
when, patience of, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Not an easy text to understand, I get it. Not an easy text. And we saw some of this last time, I talked a bit to you last time about it. One, one writer said, this is just encouraging, one writer said there are 180 different exegetical combinations in theory to the meaning of this text. And what am I doing standing up here this morning doing this with that in mind? But there is an overarching theme And though there might be some differing views on how to approach this text, the overarching theme is we start on earth in verse 18 and we end up in heaven in verse 22. That's victorious. We start out in death in verse 18. We end up reigning, sovereignty of God reigning over everything in verse 22. That's the overarching theme of these verses. And that's what I want to sort of connect for you this morning Rather than give you all 180 exegetical combinations and all 20 different views, I'm just going to give you one. And one that I think ties it together best. And this will not determine your eternal salvation on how you view this passage. You can't be too dogmatic on it. But I do believe this will tie together the theme. It's consistent with the theme and what I want to say to you this morning. First, I took you to verse 18 last week, and I told you this talked about victory. Victory is the theme. Overcomer is the theme. Triumphant is the theme. And we saw he was victorious in suffering. It did not look like he was winning on the cross. It did not look very triumphant on the cross. It looked like a failure, like I mentioned last week. But God turned that around and made that and used that death, that death of the perfect Son of God to be the payment for sin. That vicarious death of Christ dying in our place dealt with the sin problem that we all have. The very thing that keeps us from God, he, ta- <coughs> excuse me, he makes access with God possible. He is the introducer. That's the word. He brings us to God. You see that in verse 18. He is the introducer. That's the word. He is the one that must take us into the presence of God. Listen, you come up, and I'll say this like I said it last week. You come up with a spirituality that does not include Christ to approach God. Then you have invented a God of your own design. You've created your own God because the only true God, the God of the Bible, says the only way to approach him is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no other way into his presence. And you do away with Christ, you've done away with the very one that can verify whether you belong there or not. He's the only one. And so he showed victory over his suffering. It looked bad. Oh, it looked bad. We're losing. Oh, no. It was victorious. The veil came down the temple, access to God. I can go, very, go into his very presence because of his vicarious death, because of his righteousness imputed to me, and because the payment of sin has been made on my behalf. Secondly, 
a victorious proclamation. Starts at the end of verse 18. Gets a little tricky here, but stay with me. It simply says, having been put to death in the flesh, he died, and his spirit made it was alive. He's dead in his flesh, alive in his spirit. We're talking about the three days prior to the resurrection. The cross in the tomb, in the tomb, this is what happened. This is giving you behind the scenes what happened while Christ was in the tomb. It says his spirit refers to his human spirit. If your Bible translation has spirit capitalized, they have taken liberties and they've made, a, they've made an interpretation of the passage. They have not told you what it literally is in the languages, in the Greek language. Because in the Greek language, everything is capitalized in ancient Greek. And so you have to look at the context. And because you are contrasting flesh with spirit, it makes sense you're talking about human spirit. It's like you and I. When we die, our body goes into the grave. His body was in the tomb, but his spirit was still alive. You don't, your life does not end when your body dies or goes to sleep. People have a problem with the word made alive in the spirit. What is that all about? Did God die? And had he brought back to life in the spirit? People have a problem with that. Weist gives, I think, a a good explanation of what that could mean. We don't know for sure. Lots of mystery here. But remember when Jesus was on the cross and everything got dark and the Father turned away from the Son? And we know that because Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the moment, Jesus took on sin. The God, God the Father could not look on Christ. The first time, you know, that was the thing Christ struggled with in the garden. It wasn't so much the suffering of a cross as much as it was the separation from God. That had never happened before. We're in the Trinity. And so he turns from Christ. So there's a spiritual deadness we says, that occurred there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then moments later, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That is a possible explanation for made alive, the word made alive. That's where, that trips a lot of people up and a lot of interpreters, and you can read, read about it in many, many commentaries on that statement, made alive. But I think that's a, a good explanation of what we're trying to talk about here. But he did die. That's important. This is one statement where it says he was human and he died. They didn't have to break his legs because he was already dead. They would break their legs so they would suffocate. They couldn't push themselves up on the cross, and so they would just basically, when their legs were broken, they would be forced to squeeze against the diaphragm and couldn't breathe. And so, he has this energized human spirit. Christ does. He wasn't, uh, he, he was alive in the tomb in his spirit, not in limbo. He, he does something. He does something we see in verse 19, in which also, in this spirit, in his human spirit, excuse me, in his spirit, 
He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. You see that in verse 19, verse 20, who were once disobedient. Lots of questions here. In his human spirit between the death and the resurrection, he goes and preaches a sermon, caruso. That's what the word means. He preaches a sermon. He makes a proclamation. He heralds a message to the spirits now in prison. Who are the spirits and what is the prison? First, human, this is not human beings. Some people say, well, this is Jesus going down to give people a second chance. It's a second chance sermon. No. Uh, humans are never referred to as spirits. Go down to verse 20, 20 and you see the eight souls. That's how you refer to people, eight souls, eight persons on the ark. So they weren't talking there. We're not talking here about human beings in prison. We're talking here about angels because angels are called spirits in the New Testament. Hebrews 7:14. They're called ministering spirits. So Jesus goes down into, excuse me, goes down to preach a sermon, to make proclamation to these fallen angels, to these fallen angels who were disobedient. That's why they're called fallen, excuse me, that's not why they're called fallen. They're all fallen angels or disobedient. But these angels did something that went beyond the bounds of normal disobedience because they are now in a place, a specific place called a prison. He goes down to that place and he preaches a proclamation, a sermon to those demons that are in that place. It's a proclamation, I believe, of victory. And I'll explain to you that in just a moment. It's not a message of salvation to them because demons are not redeemable. Angels are not redeemable. Fallen angels are not redeemable. So it's not preaching a message of salvation. It's a herald. It's a caruso. It's a proclamation that's being made in that place. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. It's referred to again there. This is, <laughs> there may be a reference in Ephesians 3 to this. Slight. But Peter says it in 1 Peter. It's mentioned in 2 Peter. And the scene is mentioned again in Jude. Just follow with me. This is tough. Just stay with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, still talking about these, these spirits, these fallen angels. It says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, that's the prison. That's the abyss, the word hell is, no, excuse me, the word hell is Tartarus. It's, 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 it's like an abyss. It's a place of murky darkness. In the book of Revelation, Satan and all the demons will be cast into the lake of fire. I believe this is a place for these demons to be now because of the sin they committed. They went beyond the bounds of God's, what God would say was even more than disobedience where God could not tolerate what they did. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world for the ungodly. We get a time frame here. 
This is also mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to get to those verses in just a moment. But I'm trying to give you a time frame, okay? This is a time frame of when these demons were committed to this prison. And then the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah takes you all the way back to the Old Testament, verse 6. And verse 7, and talks about righteous lot. Genesis tells the story of all of this. 1 Peter, the time frame we're going to see in a moment, I'll take you back to 1 Peter, was the time of Noah. The time frame here is the time of Noah as well. This, these angels sinned. I haven't told you how they sinned yet, but I've told you that's the reason they are there. They, they sinned and they're in the abyss. And Jesus goes down there and makes a proclamation to them. That's what you know so far. You remember the, the, Jesus encounters the demons um, and the demon, in, in the book of Luke, he encounters the demons and the demon says, why have you come? It's not our time yet. Don't throw us into the abyss. I think the same thing. Don't put us, see demons like to roam freely. There are loosed demons and there are bound demons. Let me give you a little angelology. There are, there are holy angels and then there are Satan and the fallen angels. And there are two types of fallen angels. There are loosed fallen angels and there are called demons. And there are bound fallen angels also called demons. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. His demons are loosed. They like being loosed. They like having their influence in this world. But there is a group of demons that are in prison. And that is the demons that Christ went down to make this proclamation to. Don't look at me that way. <laughs> look at, verse, look at uh, Jude 6. This is the other mention of it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull this together. I'm going to pull this together in about five sentences, okay? I know this is confusing. I just want you to say, Rod did not make this up. Now, Jude tells us why they are there, okay? Why they are there. And angels did not keep their own domain. Okay, it's a domain issue, but abandoned their proper abode. Ah, he, this is Jude 6. Jude comes before Revelation. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay, that's the, the demons that are in, in prison. They're bound demons. Aha. In the same way, Notice, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what he is saying here, these demons did something just like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, some angels, some holy angels come to visit Lot. Lot is living in the evil city of Sodom. And these holy angels come to see him, a city that's filled with rampant sin, a city that's given over to homosexuality and sodomy. And these holy angels are in human form. And the homosexual men of Sodom, you read all this in Genesis 19, I'm not making this up. In Genesis 19, you go there and these homosexual men want to rape these angels. They lusted after these angels. They come to Lot's house and 
Going, here we go. We got, we got going after flesh. Going after strange flesh. Going outside their domain. Men going after angels for the purpose of sodomy. It's a perversion, and God strikes them blind. And if you recall, if you've read Genesis 19, they keep trying to tear the door down. Their lust was so great. So the word you see just as in verse 7 of Jude. So whatever these angels in prison did is similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They went outside their their proper abode. Men, in this case, it was men going after angels, men going after strange flesh. So I'm helping you understand what is the sin that put these angels in bounds? What is it that Jesus is doing going down there and making a proclamation to them about? Go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 refers to the days of Noah. These are the days of Noah. Noah has been common in all of our passages so far. Old Testament, Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Notice verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Sons of God, understand, in the Old Testament, sons of God refers to angels. Read Job 1 and 2. When the sons of God came before God, and he was finding out what they were doing, running around the earth, and all the things they were doing. Have you considered my servant Job? All those kinds of things, they're called sons of God. Sons of God, why? Because they're not procreated. Sons of God, because they're directly created by God. That's a reference to angels. And so here you have angels, fallen angels, in this situation, fallen angels who take on human form and cohabitate with human women. So now you have angels going after strange flesh, strange flesh meaning human flesh. In Jude, you had men going after strange flesh angels and it was going to create some kind of demonic hybrid and it possibly in verse 4 that's who the Nephilim are possibly in verse 4 these giants whatever and then God says in verse 3 the Lord said my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also he also is flesh nevertheless his day shall be 120 years and that's the time it took Noah to build the ark and to preach the sermons on the righteousness of God and warning men of judgment. The purpose of the flood was to drown this race. It was to drown this race because this race would corrupt humanity. This race was a demon man, a demon woman. Christ is the God-man. He came to, it was an attempt to pollute the human race. It was an attempt to make man unredeemable. It was an attempt to make the necessity and possibility of Christ, Christ, the God-man, for coming into the world. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when the curse on Satan was that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush you on the head talking about what the seed of woman would do to Satan. Satan has been trying to thwart the plan of God. 
And so what he tries to do here in Genesis chapter 6 is pollute, so pollute the human race so that the possibility of a redeemer coming for the human race can never happen. Now that's just his thinking, but that's how the, that seems to be the demonic effort here to somehow so pollute humanity with a hybrid demon humanity that the God-man could not redeem that because God does not die for angels. Christ doesn't redeem angels. So let's mess up the human race. And so the reason Jesus then goes to preach a sermon to them in the prison where they're at is to proclaim to them, I have been victorious. To proclaim to them that you may have heard that I died. You may have, you may have heard you won. You didn't win. You did not pollute the human race. I came and I died for the human race. I have redeemed humanity. Folks, that's the victorious proclamation that I believe Christ proclaimed to those demons. You see that, don't you? In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient. Back in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Go back there. See, let me, let me tie this together. He was put to death in the flesh, back up in verse 18, in the, but made alive in the spirit so he could go down and make a statement, a sermon to the spirits now in prison who, were, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. See that? You see the time frame, days of Noah, same as the Genesis 6 scene. Sons of God, fallen angels, seeking or doing actually, cohabitating with human women, going after, leaving their abode. That was beyond any, that was beyond even the patience of God, even beyond what God would allow, that he bound these demons forever in prison and Jesus goes and preaches a sermon to them the son of God they're, they're thinking oh we won the son of God is dead <laughs> on the cross we're going to get out any day I'm surely Satan's got the key to this place and Jesus shows up and says no I'm alive turn to Colossians chapter 2 this is not going to happen today is it <laughs> Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 I'm an overcomer. I'm an overcomer. I've overcome the satanic plan. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Having canceled out. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of a decree. This is what the cross did. This is what happened at the cross. Canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Notice, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I think that's the same thing Peter's referring to. Declaring his triumphant victory over rulers and authorities are demonic or uh, uh, categories. Rulers and authorities and principalities and all those things are de demonic authorities in this world. And that's what we wrestle with in this world, Ephesians says. But anyway, he made a public display of them. He carousoed, he proclaimed to them triumphant victory. 
he heralded a victory. Notice he says, when the patience of God, if you're still in, well, you're not. First Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, verse 20 says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And I just, just highlight this. There was extreme wickedness in the days of Noah. When you read Jesus talking about when he comes again, it will be like the days of Noah. It'll be wicked in the world. The entire world is drowned except for eight persons. Second Peter says Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. His, the, the ark was not just a boat. The, the ark was a message. The ark was a message. You better, you better be able to get on this thing or judgment's coming. He preached righteousness for 120 years and nobody but eight people, family members, believed his message and were saved. That's what he says there. Eight persons were brought safely through the water. That was the judgment of God on, the wicked, on wicked humanity and the satanic influence on wicked humanity. And, and Jesus says it's going to be like in the days of Noah one day. So as Peter is writing... He's reminded about this ark, this ark. When the flood came, the ark floated. The eight were saved. Why? Because they were in the ark. The judgment was the water. The ark was what saved them because they were in the ark, safe on the ark. And Peter is fixing to say, well, that's a picture of your salvation, you have this victorious salvation. The ark reminds him of this next point. Look at verse 21. Are you back in 1 Peter 3? Verse 21. Corresponding to that, see? That means antitype is the word. That means that has a spiritual application. What I just told you about the ark in verse 20, 20 has a spiritual application. A tr spiritual truth. The ark carrying those eight people through that judgment. Protecting those eight people through that judgment. The water was the judgment. It was the ark that saved them. See, some people want to take this verse. Oh, it's interesting. They want to take this verse 21 and say, oh, baptism now saves you. They want to take this verse and say, baptism now saves you. Interesting. It's not the water that saved them. It was the ark that saved them. The water was the judgment. Water doesn't save you. Water does not save you. The ark, your relationship to the ark is what saves you. Were you in it or were you outside of it? Because when the judgment came, there was a protection from the judgment. Take out the middle part just for a moment and look at the last phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read it like this with me. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Here, immersion now saves you. Immersion, that's what baptism means, to dip, your identification with. That's what baptism is, you're identifying with Jesus. Your identification with, your immersion in, your immersion through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your immersion in the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what saves you. Not getting wet. Even Peter says that, doesn't he? Look at verse 21. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. We're not talking about taking a bath in some water. We're not talking about just getting wet. There's no, <laughs> this is a dry verse. There's no water, to be, salvation by water in this verse. Now, I fully believe that when we do a baptism service here, what do we do? We say this picture is exactly what happened to you. You're buried with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. You, Romans 6, you totally identify with Christ as a believer in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's all Peter is saying here. There's, no, there's nothing here about if you want to get saved, you've got to get baptized. No. If you are saved, you should get baptized as obedience, but that doesn't save you. And if you want protection from the judgment to come, you had better be immersed into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You had better be in the ark because the ark is Christ. To be outside the ark is to face the judgment and be pounding on the doors one day wanting to get in and not able to because it's too late. Now is the day of salvation. And so, we have a victorious salvation. He says in that verse, verse 21, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. See that? That just shows the internal nature of salvation. I love 1022 of Hebrews. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, like the flood, it removed evil and presented a new life to those who were on it. That's what salvation does. And finally, sovereignty, victorious in his sovereignty. And I do appreciate Jim's song. We've sung a lot of songs about this verse in the last couple of weeks, few weeks. I appreciate it. But look at it. This is, this is how he ends this. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The persecuted Christ is at the right hand of the Father. What a great message for these persecuted believers that Peter is writing to. The persecuted Christ who died and rose again, the persecuted Christ, who declared victory over Satan and all the demons, the persecuted Christ, who is the ark of your salvation. The persecuted Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The persecuted Christ, who came in humiliation to this earth, is now sitting with the Father. He overcame the world. He has won the war. That, that, listen, this is what they need to hear. We are at war. We're just having battles. We've already won the war. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He, he notice, over, he, he after gone to heaven, after angels and authorities and powers, all the demonic hosts, Satan, everyone have been subjected to him. And I don't know if you remember that one, Romans 8, 34. We read it a while ago. He said he's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He intercedes for us. I always think about that sometimes. I think, you know, God is, God's sitting there. This is totally heretical, what I'm about to say, but just picture this. God is sitting there, looking down, seeing me sin, 
They're looking over in Christ and going, what about that? And he goes, I died for it. I died for it. I had that sin in mind, as he shows him his nail-scarred hand, I had that sin in mind. I knew he would commit that sin, just like all of us would commit sins. He intercedes for us to the Father. He's our introducer into the presence of the Father. He's the one that keeps us there because we still blow it and we still mess up. But he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And that's why nothing can separate us from the love of God. If Christ sins, then we're all doomed. Christ is sinless and he's at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2.5, let me read this and have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. This is Philippians 2, 8 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Hear that? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You have a choice, my friends. You can bow your knee now, or you will bow your knee one day, but everybody's going to bow. Everybody will bow. Those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. There's those locked up demons again. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, Jesus Christ triumphed even in the midst of his dying, and he's at the right hand of God right now. So to the suffering believers, it's just not what it seems, guys. It's not what it seems, Peter is saying. It's not what it seems. The winning side often seems to be losing. But remember Christ on the cross. Remember Noah. No one listened to Noah. Noah was mocked. They ridiculed him for building a boat. It's not over. It's not over. You have a spectacular future as a believer because Christ died and descended to the prisons and declared victory over the demons and Satan and resurrected and ascended and we have daily battles, but the war is over. That's what I just, I just read this. I go, that's what I see. War is over and Christ is our victor and in Christ we are victorious. Your unjust suffering, he tells these believers because they, they were unsuffering unjustly and most suffering is unjust. Some isn't, but most is. Your unjust suffering is the path to victory because greater is he that is in you and he that is in the world, right? Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for these truths this morning. I pray, God, that you would always bring this positional truth to our minds when we look around us and evil seems to be prospering that we be reminded that we know their end, as Psalm 73 says. We perceive their end. We know, God, that judgment will come one day. And we want to pre- preach the gospel that many will get on the ark of Christ and be saved from the judgment to come. That's what salvation is, to be saved from the wrath of God. I pray if anyone's here this morning and has not experienced that salvation, has not put their faith and trust in Jesus, I pray, God, that you will impact their hearts to know that one day they will not be protected from the judgment without Christ. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.